Hello and welcome back to Only the Parts You Need, a GURPS podcast. In this episode, I'll be giving a review of Pyramid 344, Alternate GURPS 2. I'll also be mentioning various blog posts in relation to the articles, which will be linked in the description. This is one of my favourite pyramid issues. I've used many of the articles within, which I'll talk about in order. In this issue are the last gasp by Douglas H. Cole, which provide advanced fatigue rules. I've used this and I like it a lot. There's also From Skills to Advantages by Sean Punch, which does exactly what it says, rules for creating advantages out of skills, which is very useful for certain character concepts and campaigns. There's a Colourless Green Ideas Sleep Furiously, which is an alternate language module for GURPS by Roger Burton West. Next, there's Tactical Mass Combat by David L. Pulver. I've used this one to a great success in a long campaign. Abstract Wealth by Jason Brick. Niche to Scratch by Stephen Marsh, the Pyramid Editor, which provides rules for protecting the thing you're supposed to be really good at. And Survivable Guns, also by David Pulver. I've used this in the past and I use it now in a current campaign as of this episode. So, first up is Last Gasp. While I'm not using it currently, I have used it in the past. Full disclosure, I love what Last Gasp does to combat. It's not suited for every campaign or for every group for that matter, but if you're the type that likes a bit of extra detail and grittiness, you'll love it too. So the overall point of Last Gasp is to make players treat being tired and fatigued far more seriously. In many stories, you can see examples of characters needing days and even weeks to recover after like crossing a desert, fighting a desperate long battle or similar feats of extreme exertion. Additionally, in fights in GURPS, there are usually constant action where everybody's doing everything they can to win all the time. But in movies, books, and other stories, there's more like flurries of action followed by breaks in the flow, whether that be two swordsmen circling each other before crossing blades, or boxers taking a step back and assessing their opponent. And uh, finally, many stories feature warriors that have incredible stamina, which is contrasted with those who don't. So GURPS does feature this already. Very long battles have fatigue point costs, but that is only for extremely long battles. And it's not a consideration most of the time, though it could be. So those are those three things. So characters needing to recover after extreme exertion, um, the fights having breaks in them, and of course, warriors with extreme stamina, which is contrasted. How do we represent those three things in GURPS? Well, the last gasp does all three, right? So this rules module is composed of smaller rules modules that are semi-independent of each other. Not, not all have to be used, only the parts you need. Uh, Douglas Cole's rules here are detailed and satisfying, in my opinion, and provide gritty combat-focused campaigns with extra flavor and can benefit both high and low fantasy as well as other types of... Um, campaigns. So the system itself, there's two core components, this new fatigue system. There's long-term fatigue and short-term fatigue. Long-term fatigue makes spending, losing, and regaining fatigue more important. 
instead of large fatigue penalties starting at less than one third fatigue, the rule gradual impairment due to fatigue under, under long term fatigue means that fatigued characters are weaker, slower and more unfocused. That is, they have lower attributes like immediately, right? Being fatigued is something every, everybody wants to avoid, but may sometimes be unable to, right? So that means that when you lose even a couple of fatigue points, you're being impaired just a little bit, right? It's like this gradual thing. So for a game master, this can be very interesting. It's now possible to wear players down. You can make them feel the weight of battle after battle with no rest. Whereas in standard GURPS, characters can fully recover from like general kind of fatigue from most battles in under an hour or two. Now they may be required to fight below their peak uh, much more often than otherwise if like the game master wants to put the pressure on, right? But for players, this means that more options are now viable because one's attributes may vary at different levels of fatigue you might not always be strong enough to wield your two-handed sword that requires strength 12, right? Because when you're tired, you won't be fully, like, you know, you won't have the requisite strength all the time. But that short sword that only requires strength 8 can be used without penalty, even when you're partially exhausted. Furthermore, character archetypes, such as the warrior who simply outlasts his opponent through superior stamina, are now viable. Of course, this does come with the downside that sometimes players will find that their characters are worn out and tired, which is suboptimal, but is it fun? And it can be, because scraping out by the skin of your teeth and fighting desperately against foes through exhaustion, these are dramatic scenarios. So these rules increase the dramatic potential and drama, drama is fun and memorable. So furthermore, the fatigue point recovery is long-term. There are three stages, mild, severe, and deep. Mild fatigue is quick to recover, severe is slower, and deep is the slowest. Deep fatigue is negative fatigue, mild is half fatigue and above, and severe is below half, but not negative, right? So you've got, of your, of your positive fatigue points, the upper half is mild, the lower half is severe and below zero is deep, right? So the way this is written is a bit unintuitive in the book, but with a bit of thought, you can grasp it quickly. Someone with 10 fatigue points can spend five and recover them quickly, as it is mere mild fatigue. However, if they spend six, they'll still recover those five quickly, but the sixth fatigue point, so the last one they spend, was severe fatigue, so they will not gain that final fatigue point back as fast as the others. So players can always expect to gain some fatigue points back when resting if they've recently spent some. But it means that kind of when you've spent a whole lot, you won't have those like, you won't be back to maximum immediately, right? I also mentioned impairment due to fatigue. So the lower attributes and skills but noticeably this doesn't lower these for every purpose. So losing strength doesn't lower your hit points and losing fatigue points also doesn't lower your maximum fatigue points due to lower health either, right? Like even though your effective health might be lower, 
you don't lower your fatigue point cap, right? That would be, that'd be crazy. That'd be double dipping. So there's also various uh, custom rules here, such as capping attribute penalties and alternate rules for losing hit points when below zero fatigue points or not. And so that's long-term fatigue. The second part of last gasp is short-term fatigue. This introduces action points or AP. These track moment-to-moment -moment fatigue and are the core of the changes to combat. Characters have action points based on their health and some combat maneuvers such as attacking movement and others cost action points some as evaluate and concentrate do not cost action points and still others can recover action points this makes maneuvers like evaluate more attractive as it is a way one might gain an advantage without spending ap this drastically changes the pacing of combat, though I will note now that the rules also include methods to deal with groups of NPCs and action points, so the Game Master does not have to do excessive bookkeeping. Action points can also be recovered by doing nothing, though you can move at a walking pace for free. A character doesn't have to rapidly expend points just for walking around the house after all right there are variant rules for moving that allow sprinting to be better represented which i like and some players have suggested online that action points shouldn't be charged for moving at all and i have tried this in my games and i don't recommend it i found that it makes the last gasp rules irrelevant because most characters will be able to end most combats before the fatigue becomes relevant when you don't have moving as a cost, right? Because movement is normally such a large factor in the usual action point drain. So I advise against making movement free. In Gasping Simplified, which is a blog post on Douglas Cole's blog, Douglas provides some good examples of more simplified rules for accounting fatigue points, including movement, which I do like the look of, though I haven't used them myself. So if you want to make it a bit simpler, I recommend looking at that, it'll be linked. Douglas has also suggested on his blog that when using Last Gasp, it is balanced to lower the penalty for Rapid Strike, as Last Gasp's action points appropriately penalise Rapid Strike with action point loss, rather than having to depend on this massive penalty. So. That's kind of an outline of the rules in a way, but how does it actually affect combat? Well, it takes a little bit longer. There are lulls in combat now, because GURPS combat can be lethally fast, but now chewing through crowds of enemies may leave a character actually panting for breath, as it should. As I mentioned earlier, more dramatic potential is available to the Game Master now. Enemy reinforcements arriving can now be treated as a serious threat without increasing their actual power, since relatively fresh troops arriving to face player characters who have already partially expended themselves are more of a threat simply because they are fresh and can afford to exert themselves more compared to the players. For players, they can do such things as attempting to tie enemies out, sending them running about the place with distractions, stimulants, 
and fatigue recovery potions also become more important. On that note, in order to prevent magic in fantasy games from re-trivializing fatigue, game masters may wish to inspect salving magic from Pyramid 313 Thaumatology and apply its rules to fatigue points. Furthermore, enemies might be able to dispel magically recovered fatigue, making it a more risky option. So existing advantages also have new variants, such as regeneration with fatigue recovery and an action point recovery variant too. Fit and very fit only affect fatigue points, not action points since they're so cheap. Douglas Cole has actually mentioned this on his blog and essentially said that without changing the price, fit and very fit cannot provide bonuses to action points beyond their health bonus roles to recover AP. So they still provide the health bonus, right? Because when you recover AP, you roll health, right? So that's that mundane side, but what about spells and extra effort? So there's rules for those two, and this is where it can make fantasy games rather interesting. So most spells should use action points unless a variant mana system such as Threshold Limited Majory is used instead. I personally prefer Quintessence, Threshold Majory, or other kinds of mana rather than basic fatigue powered majory anyway, so that's not really a problem for me. So final thoughts, uh, the way Last Gasp is laid out in the books can make it seem really unintuitive. This is because essential information is spread out among the explanations. This is often a problem with GURPS books anyway, but fortunately pseudonym from the Let's GURPS blog has made a cheat sheet available for free that provides like that information you need in a much more condensed form. So I'll link that in the description or you can find it on sudaboo.blogspot.com. I do recommend it. So in conclusion, Last Gasp adds a lot of flavor and dramatic possibility. It is more bookkeeping, but for a group of experienced GURPS players, that shouldn't be a problem. There are many tweaks available to customize it to your liking. And I've even made a little web app uh, for play that works on mobile and desktop. And you can find that linked too. Next up is From Skills to Advantages by Sean Punch, aka Chrome. This article is rather straightforward. It's for converting supernatural and exotic skills into advantages. As the issue states, when you have something you want as an innate power rather than a learned improvable skill, it's far more appropriate for it to be an advantage rather than a skill. When a skill has many prerequisites, when what you really want is solely what the skill provides and not the other things that go along with it, then you want an advantage version too. There are many applications for this, including advantagizing the ability to recognize magic on site, like what Thaumatology provides mages. Power Blow is another great candidate for this. Even the ability to guess passwords as a cinematic advantage are also examples in this article. Spells aren't usually good candidates for balance reasons, but the article talks about that subject anyway. As enraged Eggplant has noted to me, imbuement-based sorcery spells are made with the rules from this article, so that's even more applications for it. There's not much more I can say about it without explaining the rules other than it's functional and it works. It does what it should. So what's next? 
uh, Colourless Green Ideas Sleep Furiously by Roger Burton West. The title of this doesn't give much away, but as I mentioned at the start, it's Advanced Rules for Languages with GURPS. It's a rather curious system. Languages are skills and are not dependent on IQ. I of course don't want to give away the system here, so I'll talk about what I'd use it for. These rules I view as an enhancement for certain types of games. They don't exactly fill a hole in existing kind of gameplay needs, but provide new gameplay possibilities in the right scenarios. While I haven't used these rules myself, I'll say that this detailed system is most useful when the meaning, writing, and messages thereof are important in the campaign. Campaigns that feature the spread and dissemination of ideas as core plot points may benefit from these rules, especially if taking place in worlds with language barriers. Archaeological games, with their focus on ancient scripts, languages, and similar things, have room as well for enhancement with these rules, and so too will spy games, where you are spying in like foreign countries. Learning languages costs more points now since they're skills. Improvement via study is vital, as in the that's in-game, not out of game. And game masters using these rules should allocate a pool of points specifically for languages or increase total point cost. So Comprehension roles become far more common with this system too, though for mundane and day-to-day roles there are huge bonuses, so you shouldn't really be like, you don't fail a role to like understand basic instructions. So while it's possible to stumble over one's words with this in the system, right, it's not that common, just like in real life, like occasionally you'll stumble over words and things like that. Furthermore, it makes education more attractive since books and other messages have target comprehension levels. This may make learning magic in fantasy settings particularly interesting if one finds a book of advanced ancient magic instead of Majory 101. Characters who do not have the requisite skill to understand advanced texts will be unable to fully comprehend the contents. This is great for discovering ancient magic learning of forbidden law and such, as characters can slowly piece together the true meaning. In conclusion, if you want language skill to matter, really matter, these rules are right up your alley. Otherwise, you'll find them needless. Probably, anyway. Up next is Tactical Mass Combat by David L. Pulver. Anyone familiar with Ogre? or GEV Tactical War Games by Steve Jackson, will find Pulver's Tactical Mass Combat for GURPS extremely familiar because it's literally a simplified version of GEV. These Tactical War Games, including Tactical Mass Combat, are hex grid based games. So Tactical Mass Combat is a bit like GURPS the Tabletop War Game. Chits or tokens are required and so is a hex grid just like regular tactical combat. If GURPS mass combat is the mapless theater of the mind, then tactical mass combat is quite literally the hex grid mapped version. That said, 
Tactical mass combat is built on and does seamlessly integrate with mass combat, providing rules for the appropriate setup of forces depending on the type of battle, movement, types of units and more. There are rules for terrain types, roads, fortifications and urban hexes, as well as off-map support elements like artillery and even aircraft. I will note that GURPS mass combat is required to use tactical mass combat. So how does it perform as written quite well? I've used it in past campaigns on multiple occasions with the players commanding armies while I commanded enemies. Troop strength is the base stat of like everything. Troop strength serves as both attack and defense. Units do not have hit points. They are simply alive, pinned or eliminated. Destroyed doesn't necessarily mean totally destroyed narratively. It's up to the GM to work out after the battle what percentage of the eliminated are actually dead. Pinned is like a status effect. It can be inflicted by ranged attackers. It's used as a midpoint between no effect and target eliminations. Combat is resolved in a simple but intuitive way. Dice are rolled, the strength of each side is compared, and a simple table determines the outcome. It's a proven system with Ogre and GEV as the basis for this. They use virtually the same table as Tactical Mass Combat, though they lack the pin status effect. The table used is for 2d6, so there's actually a bit of a steeper bell curve, but I think this is fine. So, minor advantages in numbers are actually not particularly advantageous, especially with terrain as a factor. So there's a focus on manoeuvre and the proper use of one's forces, not merely mashing armies together and letting the slightly bigger or much bigger number win. Units may be stacked into one hex up to four, which is advantageous for melee combat, but means that ranged firepower can be more effective, though not unreasonably so. Units can be transported as well, like those that have transportation capacity, so you can have your drop pods. I must also mention that there is another article in this issue which covers multi-sided battles using the tactical mass combat rules. There's not much to say about those exactly, other than that they work, right? You now have support for multi-sided battles, and it's good to have them in case you get a three-way battle or something. So what of the commanders and heroes in tactical mass combat? Characters can command units, but this requires tactics and or leadership skills, and having both is preferable. Alternatively, using the party or individual members as troops is possible, you'll just have to estimate their troop strength, as Gerbis Mass Combat states. Or, you can use the Heroes on the Mass Scale article from Pyramid 384 Perspectives for an accurate stat block. Commanders exist as well, which must accompany some command element. Leadership and strategy skills determine how many command points the commander has. These points can be spent in a number of ways to alter the flow of battle. Depending on tech level, the commander may or may not need to be in proximity to the unit he wishes to spend command points on. They're kind of like special commander abilities from, um, you know, video games in a way, but they're not, I wouldn't say they're like really video gamey. Anyway, aircraft and air units 
a one area though that may be particularly unsatisfying for some. Aircraft are definitely treated as support units. Turns in tactical mass combat are about five minutes and aircraft are assumed to be able to dive down from above to conduct attack runs anywhere on the map, though they do not leave the field until the end of the enemy's turn, giving the foe a chance to fire back. Five minutes is certainly long enough for an aircraft to do this. However, aircraft only have a 50% chance to be able to re-enter the battle after being utilized. I understand why, since air needs to be limited in some way, especially with its high mobility. But if you want air units to have like a big role, then you need to have a lot of them because probably you won't get to see them all. Especially if you if you roll badly, they won't be able to re-engage into that battle. But they're not they're not destroyed. They're just unable to like you know do another bombing run or whatever. So I found that. Tactical mass combat is relatively fast, even faster than GURPS combat can be. I think this makes it particularly appealing. As the book notes, the GM can break to regular GURPS combat as any, at any point, so it is possible to have a battle going on while the player characters occasionally fight in regular GURPS combat. If doing this, the GM should keep in mind that if the player or enemy is forced back 50 yards, which is about half a hex at the mass scale, they are pushed out of that hex. And it is also possible for combat to take long enough time to increment a mass combat turn as well. A final note, as I said before, this system is like Ogre and GEV, but unlike GEV and Ogre, units only have troop strength rather than attack and defense strength. This is because mass combat only has the single number troop strength too. However, if one wanted to go to the effort, heroes on the mass scale in Pyramid 384 perspectives has rules for converting character sheets to mass combat stat blocks and rules for raising said characters as troops. So one could stat up troops, obtain attack and defense numbers from that module and though you may find that Pyramid 377 is helpful here, as Heroes on the Mass Scale is based on, it's a threat from Pyramid 77. So you can use that to get an idea of what should be attack and what should be defense if you wanted to reintroduce attack strength and defense strength. Additionally, GEV also has some units with split movement. Their second movement number is how far they can move after attacking. I think this could be a great way to make cavalry more distinctive, allow them to move either three or two plus one. So they could move two hexes, attack, and then move one hex afterwards. So there's many house rules, fan rules, and more out there for GEV. And if you're an industrious game master, you can adapt these to tactical mass combat with a bit of work. In conclusion, I like it, and I'll be using it again in the future. On to Abstract Wealth by Jason Brick. Are you afraid of numbers? Do you want your characters to be killing things rather than doing accounting? Do you wish you were playing D20 Modern? <laughs> then Abstract Wealth is for you. From what I've heard, D20 Modern uses a similar system and is one of the few good features that system had. The GURPS version of this kind of abstract wealth 
is also quite good. Wealth is a score, almost like another attribute. It is rolled against for buying items, with cheaper items being an easier roll and more expensive items being harder. Certain things, like buying items, temporarily lower the wealth score, or it might not with a good roll. There's levels of this abstract wealth score, from homeless all the way up to galactic empire. I haven't used this myself, but I am interested in using it in the future. If your group doesn't want to track specific numbers for like money and wealth, this is a great choice. I've been told by people who have used it that it is great for the right type of campaign or group. It's also useful for game masters in political games where there's large cash flows by major nations and other large scale groups. Rather than tracking how many millions of dollars a corporation has in liquidity, you can simply assign an appropriate abstract wealth score and roll. However, this article does mention that abstract wealth doesn't mesh well with campaigns where loot or other such cash infusions are a regular part of the game because getting, splitting and spending loot is an important reward. It suggests that cash could just be spent normally when it's reward. So perhaps this is more suited to games with steady income streams for players. Games where player characters are working regular jobs such as colonial or frontier games could be appropriate, as could modern games where large cash rewards are not a major part of it, such as superheroes who aren't usually paid. So in conclusion, this is definitely worth checking out. On to Niche to Scratch by Stephen Marsh, the Pyramid Editor. This is an interesting one. These rules are for a special meta advantage perk. Meta advantages are things like luck, which affect the game via meta effects, in the case of luck's dice rolls. Niche protection is similar, but with both effects meta and in character. It is a specialised perk that, in the game world, makes the character with it the leading figure at the niche defined on the perk's specialisation in the minds of characters in the game. They become the world expert on their niche, as defined in the advantage, whatever it may be. This doesn't actually provide them with skills or advantages related to it. They're simply thought of at being the best at their niche, even if they're not. Such a detective, for example, who doesn't really solve things via sleuthing, but is still considered the best detective in the world is an example. The rules for this are to prevent other players and even NPCs from stepping on the toes of a niche protected character's niche, whatever it is. This can't cause failure from others, it just changes the margin of success for other characters who do not have niche protection. Another factor of niche protection is that every adventure or so there must be an opportunity for that niche to shine. So there's three factors. It affects the success roles of others. It causes the game world to kind of bow to the niche, and it also places obligations on the GM. These three factors make it a very odd rules nugget. The effects are subtle moment to moment, but have the effect potential for large impacts on the tone of the campaign. I don't think I'll use it as it's not my style of GMing, 
but maybe it's something that you might find useful for your campaign. Now, it's time for the last article here. Survivable guns. Guns are by default very deadly. Ingo's too deadly, in my opinion. And apparently David L. Polver agrees. Damaging GURPS is largely modelled off penetrating power versus hard armour. Since modern firearms are great at penetrating armour, determining their damage this way results in rifles dealing lethal damage, even with a single non-vital torso shot. This is rather odd, as even though long arms are powerful, are they really two or three times more deadly than being run through with a sword? More deadly? Sure, but that much more? That's debatable. And in any case, survivable guns is the solution, and it's quite simple and elegant. Lowering damage, but keeping armour penetration about the same for high-velocity firearms is the name of the game here. While this is called cinematic, it's arguable that this is actually more realistic in some ways, and that guns were too deadly before as there are many examples, in reality, of people being shot in the chest but surviving, as the shot missed anything vital. Terminal ballistics is a contentious subject, anyway. I've used survival guns myself extensively in my games. Whether or not the game is supposed to be cinematic or realistic, I find these rules are worth using, because it means that heavy armour is not required to live but at the same time it doesn't make said armour redundant or useless. A fully armoured soldier will still enjoy protection, but it means that the gunslinger wearing a cotton shirt won't instantly die the moment he fails to dodge. An alternative to this is the optional wounding rules on high-tech page 162. However, while these are functional, they involve more bookkeeping, more dice rolls, and I don't really feel like it emphasises the importance of shot placement that much, whereas survival guns does, because survival guns front loads the effort to solve the problem at the source. My players have found these rules good, as they don't have to worry about instant death, yet at the same time, guns are still capable of dealing crippling wounds and targeting the vitals is still deadly, as it should be. For example, the 5.56 Assault Rifle deals 5 damage dice in basic set. With survival guns, it deals 2 dice plus 2, with an armour divisor of 2. So let's compare the same gun in basic set and survival guns. I'll assume a basic average damage roll for both the basic set 5.56 and the survival guns 5.56 against 6DR, which is medium plate armor. The basic set assault rifle deals 11 damage on this average roll, which instantly sends an average person unconscious with a failed HT roll or kills them on a vital hit. The survival guns assault rifle deals six damage through the armor. This is still a major wound for an average human and likely to cause knockdown. It's not instantly deadly on a vitals hit, but it would quickly lead to death by bleeding if using bleeding rules. Without armour on a non-vitals hit, the basic set assault rifle deals 17 damage, which is crippling and puts the target near death. 
while the survival guns rifle deals 9 damage. This is significant because it's still a major wound. A follow-up shot is unlikely to be lethal for the survival guns rifle. A big difference comes with vital hits though. The basic set rifle is instantly fatal to an average person on a vital hit with 51 damage. While the survival guns rifle can kill on a vital hit at 27 damage, it's not a sure thing. Though with bleeding rules, this wound is still quite serious. This is as it should be, I think. This means that a lightly armoured player character, say one who wants to survive via speed, is not at risk of instant death from a failed dodge roll. So in conclusion, highly recommended. My players like it, I like it, it works. So that was Pyramid Series 3, Issue 44. If you'd like to hear me review more Pyramid articles, let me know in the comments or email us. Thanks for listening. This is Legend Smith. I'll catch you next time.